If you'd like to read with me today's teaching text from Matthew, 27th chapter. Pastor Kaiser will be uh, preaching from verses 52 and 53, but I'll start up at the beginning of this section at verse 45. Let us hear God's word. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. The rest said, Lead him, let him alone, let us see if Elijah will come and save him. Jesus, when he had cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time of worship, that we may worship you in song, in prayer, and in the preaching of your holy scriptures. May each of us gathered here, uh, regulars and visitors, child and parent, male and female, be filled with awe as we rejoice in the coming of our King. Uh, for the preaching of your scriptures, we ask your blessing on our pastors that that they would be encouraged in their study throughout the week and draw ever closer to you, that they would not grow weary in well-doing, but have an ever greater joy in their service to you, that you would guard them also against the shifting winds of doctrine that lead so many astray in our day as in the past, that they would hold fast to the teaching handed down from the saints. We also pray for the hearing of your scriptures. We ask that you Prepare each of us to receive what you have to teach us, that because we are prone to being dull of hearing and hard-hearted, we do need your grace. Please remove the scales from our eyes and soften our hearts, that the seeds of truth may fall on fertile ground and not wither in the scorching sun of a hostile world. O oh, Father, your scriptures, your word in writing is inspired infallible, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient. May we take it to heart and be built up for every good work. May your Holy Spirit be active through it and in us, that we may be transformed by him into the likeness of your Son, our Redeemer and King, our Savior and Lord, in whose powerful name we pray. Amen. We've been going through the last miracles that uh, were in the Passion Week, 
And I hope if you were not convinced already that by now you are thoroughly convinced that God's providence governs even the tiniest details of life. And today we're going to be looking at miracle number five and seven, uh, the opening of the graves and the uh, raising of a number of dead. And uh, Glenn probably is going to be uh, tackling the sixth miracle, which is the resurrection of Christ uh, next, uh, next Sunday. And what I want to do is I want to put this in context, and we're going to start about 10 days before the death of Christ, and uh, about uh, 10 days earlier, well, it was exactly 10 days earlier, Jesus was anointed with oil by Mary, and Jesus said that that was marking him aside for death, for his burial. That was the night in which the temple lambs were marked and were consecrated for uh, their coming deaths. On Palm Sunday, Jesus was acclaimed as king, but he was also marching toward that temple uh, surrounded by, Josephus says, over 200,000 lambs that were getting ready to be slaughtered uh, in Jerusalem. And it must have been an incredibly emotional time for Christ as he, the lamb that was to be slain for the sins of his people, is walking in the midst of all of these lambs toward those priests who were going to slaughter those lambs and who were about to slaughter Jesus as well, he willingly went to lay down his life uh, for his people. And uh, he also went letting people know he was not a victim, he was in control, because what did he do on that day? He cleansed the temple, drove these people out, and they couldn't stop him. He was in total control. Now, we're going to skip over some events, but we saw that there was a significance to the timing of when Jesus was nailed to the cross. Uh, The three hours of darkness that went from noon to three o'clock in the afternoon, those were the three hours of preparation that were preparing the lambs to start to be slaughtered at three o'clock, but because it was dark, they couldn't do those preparations, and I think God orchestrated that because he did not want any competition with the final sacrifice Christ uh, the lamb uh, to take away the sins of the world. God wanted everyone's attention on Calvary. Now, at the moment that the temple lambs would have been slain, if they could have been slain, uh, Christ dies, the temple veil is torn in two, there's this great earthquake, and when the darkness ceases and the lights come back on, the people are able to see straight into the Holy of Holies. And we saw some of the uh, the, the reasons why that would be the case. Uh, just a remarkable time. Now, today we're going to be focusing on the victory of the resurrection, and this draws not from the symbol of the Passover, which is on Nisan 14, Nisan being the name of the month, but this is from the festival of first fruits, which is on Nisan 16. And it really is a, a marvelous feast that's almost as amazing as the events that take place on Passover day. Um, this was the day when a token harvest of grain was offered up to the Lord as a symbol of the resurrection of Christ and of some Old Testament saints along with Christ. And I want to go back just a few days to a time when they were preparing for this feast. The preparation for that began the evening before Jesus was crucified. The elders went out and they marked a spot that Uh, was to be harvested by binding some of the grain together with a rope. And it wasn't harvested yet, but they bound it together with a rope. And that was the night that Jesus was bound by the elders of Israel. And guess where the grain was bound? It was outside Jerusalem over the brook Kidron. 
And guess where Jesus was bound? Outside Jerusalem, as uh, Pastor Glenn mentioned, I think it was last uh, week, over the brook uh, Kidron in the Garden of Gethsemane, which Edersheim says bordered that field where the elders would have been binding uh, the, the grain that evening. And by the way, if you want a marvelous description of this, read Alfred Edersheim. Uh, he's got a big fat book that takes you about 10,000 years to read, but it's uh, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. It's an incredible book, great resource. Well, guess what happened when the grain was cut down? It was the next evening that they did this, just as the Sabbath was approaching. Well, that's when Jesus' body is cut down from the tree, from the cross. Let me read you two passages. Uh, Luke 23, 54 says, That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. Uh, John 19, 31 indicates it wasn't the regular weekly Sabbath. This was the festival uh, Sabbath. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. And so it was almost the Sabbath. That's why they had to quickly find a tomb and they put Jesus into a nearby tomb. Now let me read you a part of the description of the festival of first fruits that Edersheim gives. When the time for cutting the sheaf had arrived, three men, each with a sickle and basket, set to work. Clearly to bring out what was distinctive in the ceremony, they first asked of the bystanders three times each of these questions. Has the sun gone down with this sickle into this basket on this Sabbath? Uh, and lastly, shall I reap? Having each time been answered in the affirmative, they cut down barley to the amount of one ephah. Now, I found it interesting that in the New Bible Dictionary, it says, an ephah is the name of a vessel large enough to hold a person. Now, whether there is a significance in the size, you know, in terms of uh, the, the body of Christ, I don't know. But when you think of all of the other details, the superintending providence of God is just absolutely... Uh, spectacular it foreshadows the fact it was the elders of Israel who cut off uh, uh, Jesus and they did it right on the timing that God had predicted during Passover even though they wanted to wait till after the Passover had finished God would not allow that to uh, to happen and they asked the people when they're harvesting this grain shall I harvest it uh, cut it down and they say yes cut it down just as uh, the the priests asked the people you know, shall we crucify him? They cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Uh, Edersheim comments on the irony of the moment as the throng carries the heavy burden of grain away at the very time that Nicodemus and Joseph carry the body to a near, nearby tomb. And who knows, maybe the two groups even saw each other. Edersheim says, a noisy throng followed delegates from the Sanhedrin outside the city and across the brook Kidron. It was a very different procession and for a different purpose from the small band of mourners which just about the same time carried the body of the dead Savior from the cross to the rock-hewn tomb wherein no man had yet been laid. While the one turned into the garden, perhaps to one side, the other emerged amidst loud demonstrations in a field across Kedron which had been marked out for that purpose. They were to be engaged in a service most important to them. It was probably to this circumstance that Joseph of Arimathea owed their non-interference with his request for the body of Jesus and Nicodemus and the women that they could go undisturbed about the last sad offices of loving mourners. Now, isn't that incredible? Absolutely incredible. The sheaves of grain stayed in the ephah-sized basket for three days and three nights, 
just as Christ stayed in the tomb for three days and three nights. On the 16th of Nisan, the, the uh, grain was beaten out, it was ground, it was purified. Early in the morning, it was offered up to the Lord as a wave offering. And in Matthew 13, Christ indicates the symbolism of the grain is the resurrection of all of God's elect people, but not all are going to be uh, resurrected in this first fruits resurrection. Most are going to have to wait uh, till the end of history in the general resurrection, the general harvest of the, of the grain. And the key thing to remember is that no one can be raised unless they are identified, you know, with Christ in his death and resurrection. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says there is an order. There's Christ, the first fruits, and then much later, a harvest of all of the grain when it is ripe. So that's the picture that God gives in the festival of first fruits. And with that as a background, I want to look at the significance of the fifth miracle, the opening up of the graves, and of the seventh miracle, the resurrection of the saints. <clears throat> if Palm Sunday was a demonstration that Christ climbed that cross deliberately as a conquering king, then these two miracles, I think, are an evidence that the king has come and that the kingdom has come. All Jews, with the exception of the Sadducees, who didn't believe there was a resurrection, they didn't believe in that, but all other Jews, all Orthodox Jews, believed that uh, there would be a resurrection immediately preceding the kingdom. <clears throat> and this resurrection was proof positive then that the kingdom had come. If there's a resurrection in the first century, you're not waiting for the kingdom to come. It's already happened. And so uh, even though these two miracles may not be as gripping and some of the details as, as the previous ones, I think uh, there's a lot of neat lessons that we can learn. Uh, it corrects two major heresies that uh, have afflicted the church in modern times. And what I want to do is I want to break apart uh, the, the parts of verses 50 through 52 of Matthew 27 because if you don't see the exact order, you're going to miss the significance of these events. So Matthew 27, beginning at verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So Christ's death comes first. Then verse 51 says, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. Verse 52, And the graves were opened. And I want you to notice that there is a semicolon in the New King James Version here, and there's an even stronger period in the ESV, if you've got an ESV Bible. But, and it's important, you have some kind of a divider there. Otherwise, you might assume if it's a comma that the thing that comes after the comma is happening at the same time as the opening up of these graves. And if you believe, if you, if you translated it that way, you'd be wrong. NIV translates it that way. And it's a contradiction uh, to Acts 26, verse 23, that says that Jesus is the first to rise from the dead. Uh, first to rise with an Im immortal body. And so if you have an NIV, you need to realize that it contradicts not only Acts uh, 26, verse 23, it actually contradicts the very next uh, phrase, which says that they came out of the graves <clears throat> um, after Christ was raised from the dead. Now, some people believe it was not an immortal resurrection, that there was just a resurrection, reanimation of bodies that had recently died, and they're sitting in the tombs, you know, they can't get out. Three days they're waiting there, starving. Let us out of here, you know, and then they come out sometime after that. 
Uh, I, I just uh, do not buy that. I accept the interpretation ESV gives uh, New King James. And there's uh, most commentaries, at least in my library, uh, have taken this. They say it's, it would be an odd, odd thing if you do not put some kind of a divider here. So either punctuation works, uh, either a, a semicolon or a period. I prefer the semicolon because it indicates even though they're two distinct events, they are thematically related together. In Shaw's uh, textbook on, on punctuation, he says the semicolon is entirely a mark of separation or division. That is, it is never used to introduce, enclose, or terminate a statement. Its use indicates that two or more statements are not sufficiently related to require commas, but too closely related to justify being put in separate sentences separated by a terminal mark. And so there's a, a separation as to events with a uh, semicolon, but not as to theme. They're thematically related together. And so l let's read it with that understanding. Verse 52, and the graves were opened, semicolon, now comes a new thought that happens three days later, but it's related thematically. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Semicolon. Another new thought, because it's introducing the resurrection of Christ. It's distinguishing Christ's resurrection from their resurrection. But because they're thematically connected, it's a, a semicolon here. So verse 53 says, And coming out of the graves, after his resurrection, so he's clarifying the timing. The time they were raised was after his resurrection. Coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So here is the order. Christ dies first. Graves are immediately opened right at the time of his death. Then there is a three-day wait in which Christ is in the tomb and these other tombs are open. Then fourthly, there's the resurrection of Christ. And then finally, verse 53 says... They came out of their graves after the resurrection. Now, you might wonder, you know, what difference does it make? You know, why should we spend much time thinking about that? Let's get on to the application, but you can't apply what you don't understand. And so I want to really demonstrate that this was a resurrection into immortal bodies. It was not just a resuscitation uh, into a mortal body like Lazarus got. Um, this was a body like Christ. It uh, had some connection with the past body, and yet it was different. It was glorified. He could pass through walls, couldn't he? And yet people could touch him. They could feel him. They could handle him, as First John says. And so it's that kind of a body. And uh, I think the easiest way to demonstrate this is just looking at the prophecies of the resurrection of Christ. And I've got those in your outline there. I think the, uh, the first one is just the picture one. It's the festival of first fruits, which we've already described, that you can find in Leviticus 23. Now, there's another little detail, though, in connection with that um, festival of first fruits, and you find it in Exodus 23, verse 19. That verse refers to the, prophetically to the resurrection of Christ in this, in this phrase. The first of the first fruits. Okay, so you've got a general harvest uh, that's much later. You've got a first first harvest, and then there's something that refers to the first of the first fruits. Okay, uh, if the first of the first fruits is Jesus Christ, that implies the rest of the first fruits is going to have a similar kind of body to what Christ has. And if the first fruits is um, first of a kind and the resurrection at the end of history is immortal bodies then it implies that all of these first fruits resurrection uh, were of uh, into immortal bodies as well does that make sense 
So, uh, the festival of first fruits was not offering up one kernel of grain. It wasn't offering up just a single stalk. It's a whole sheaf of barley that is offered up to the Lord. And that's why Matthew says it's many saints who were raised. And that implies not all of them were raised, but there were many uh, who were raised. Secondly, some people believe that Ezekiel 37 speaks of a resurrection at the beginning of Christ's kingdom that would include people who had dried out bones. It was from centuries past, had no flesh, no sinews on them. There's a big difference between reanimating a body like Lazarus had and sticking flesh and sinews on those. So let me read verses 7 through 8 of Ezekiel 37. The bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. So it's a, it's a lot different than a resuscitation of a freshly dead uh, person. I'm not going to be dogmatic on this text because some people take this as just a metaphor of Israel being restored to the Lord, and that may be. But let me read a couple more verses, verses 12 through 13, and you can be the judge for yourself. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. So first the graves are open, then later they're brought up from those graves. It seems like it's a literal resurrection. I won't be dogmatic on that one. There are some other ones I will be dogmatic on. In fact, I want you to turn with me to them. Hosea chapter 6. There's Ezekiel, then Daniel, then Hosea. And Hosea 6 begins with a resurrection, and then it goes on to describe in verses 3 and following the kingdom of Christ and all of these prophecies concerning the resurrection do the same thing that's why the Jews expected that there would be a resurrection uh, prior to the, uh, the, the the coming of Christ Hosea 6 verses 1 through 2 come let us return to the Lord for he has torn but he will heal us he has stricken but he will bind us up after two days he will revive us on the third day he will raise us up that we may live in his sight now, there's a number of commentaries who say that when Paul talks in 1 Corinthians about Jesus being uh, resurrected on the third day according to the Scriptures, there's only two possible Scriptures you could uh, appeal to. The first would be Jonah in terms of symbol, and the other one would be Hosea chapter 6. But who's raised with Christ? It's not just a single person being raised. There's a whole company of people. There's many who are raised with Christ. Turn next to Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26 and verse 19. According to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, and according to Matthew, Henry, and others, this is Jesus Christ prophetically speaking. And Christ includes not, not only a reference to his resurrection, but a resurrection of other people uh, with him. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live. This is Jesus speaking. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. And so there are many saints who are prophesied to have been raised with Christ. And I want you to notice that there's some connection between that new resurrection body and the old body that was lying in the dust. It's the bodies in the dust that are being raised up. Now, certainly there's a difference. And Paul says it's as different as the difference between a seed and the, 
you know, the big stalk that comes from it, an acorn in a tree. But there's a connection. There's a lot of people who think, nah, we don't want these bodies, we discard them. There's not going to be any connection between these bodies and the resurrection bodies. It's very clear that that is not the case. There were bodies raised from the dust. Turn to Daniel chapter 12. Uh, several years ago, when I was at Trinity Presbyterian, I preached um, uh, through the book of Daniel. And when we got to chapter 11, we looked at uh, over a hundred detailed prophetic events that start in verse 1 and chronologically go from Cyrus all the way up to the death of Herod the Great in verse 45. And chapter 12, verse 1 says, at that time, and so he's referring to the time of uh, Herod the Great during that first century period is when these things are going to be fulfilled. <clears throat> it's the last days of the Old Covenant that he says, at that time, Michael shall stand up that great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. Okay, so that's the first summary statement. And he's saying, here's what's going to happen leading up all the way to the end of the Old Covenant, which was a, a great tribulation, a seven-year period from uh, A.D. 66 through A.D. 74, and uh, during that time, there were some events that were going to happen. After he giving the summary statement, he uh, looks at one event. He says, at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who was found written in the book. That's a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And uh, then subsequent to that redemption being accomplished, it says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, Matthew only deals with the resurrection of many saints. This one deals with uh, both saints as well as uh, of ungodly. There was a, um, a down payment. There was a, um, a first fruits of both that guarantee there's going to be a resurrection both of the righteous and of the unrighteous. But um, here... If you look at the language there, it's almost identical language to Matthew. It's almost a direct quote from Matthew 12, uh, verse 2, where it talks about many of the saints being, uh, being delivered. And let me look at one more. John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and verse 25. I'm going into a little bit more detail on this just because this is not something that's very frequently taught on and I wanted to make sure you, you can clearly see it in the Scripture. Here's a prophecy that Christ gives of a resurrection that is soon to come. It's really close, but he also talks about one that's off in the future. He says, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming. Now that's future tense, and I believe that hour is a reference to the, at the end of history. The hour is coming future tense, and now is. That's present tense. So that's a different time. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Um, and so you've got two resurrections. And uh, you can look at it sometime yourself. Revelation chapter 20 talks about two resurrections. There is a first resurrection that says the rest of the dead do not rise until the thousand years is finished. But Scripture only knows of two resurrections. There's a resurrection during the time of Christ. There's a resurrection 
at the end of history. Now, what does all of this mean? Why did God bother to even record those events? Well, I think the applications are huge. First of all, as I've already hinted, it means that the kingdom has come. Over and over again, John the Baptist and Christ said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is 2,000 years from now. Is that what he said? Yeah. He said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's almost here. It's at hand. And that confused the disciples because the disciples said, We've always been taught that before the kingdom can come, two things have to happen. First of all, Elijah has to come. And secondly, there has to be a resurrection. We haven't seen either one. And Jesus says, Oh, no. Uh, very shortly, I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to rise from the dead. So that takes care of the one. And secondly, Elijah already has come. He's John the Baptist. And they did to him whatever they wanted to do to him. And so, brothers and sisters, there is clear proof positive. And to the disciples, it was clear afterwards as well. If the resurrection has come, the kingdom has come. It's not been postponed, as many people uh, try to claim. And so Christ prefaces his great commission with the words, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's not just restricted to a heavenly kingdom. His kingdom has been given. And on the basis of that authority that he's received his kingdom, we're going into Canaan, we're taking the conquest of the land, we're supposed to disciple every nation, Christianizing the nations through the gospel of the Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And so you look at the book on missions in the book of Acts, and what do they talk about? They talk about the resurrection over and over again and the kingdom over and over again. Uh, Acts 1-3 begins by Jesus uh, saying, He showed himself alive after his passion by many proofs, appearing unto them by the space of 40 days and speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. So he says, there is resurrection and there is kingdom. Um, the kingdom was not postponed. Acts 8, 12 says uh, Philip's gospel message was a kingdom message. Philip preaching good tidings concerning the kingdom of God. Now some people say, well, the Jews have the gospel of the kingdom. Well, how come Philip's preaching literally? It's the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, to the Gentiles. Why? Because they're part of that kingdom. Acts 14, verse 22, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 19, 8, Paul's persuading Jews concerning the kingdom of God. Acts 20, 25, a went about preaching the kingdom of God. Last chapter of Acts, in fact, almost the last verses, it says, he's teaching the kingdom of God and no one can stop it. It's advancing invincibly. And then you look at his doctrine of the resurrection through the book of Acts, and you see that Paul... In Acts 23, 6, uh, that uh, he says, I'm being judged and called in question concerning the hope of the resurrection. What's he been teaching about? About the resurrection of, of Christ and the coming of the kingdom. In Acts uh, 26, verses 6 uh, through 8, you see exactly the same thing. And so, yes, we may be living in dark times and other dark times may come in the future, but it doesn't matter whether there are world wars or anything else. Every detail is advancing the cause of Christ's kingdom invincibly, and that can give us incredible confidence. Secondly, we don't just have confidence concerning history. We can have confidence concerning our own personal growth and life. It doesn't just indicate the kingdom has come. It indicates he has purchased life for his people. Now, the graves were opened at his death to indicate that death was swallowed up in Christ's death, but we need the positive as well. The resurrection of many saints was a token, as it were, that life has been purchased. It's not enough to conquer death. We need to have life purchased as well. And he gave to us, he says, I have come that you might have life 
and that you might have it more abundantly. So here's kind of a, a visible token or pledge or promise that that is true. Thirdly, it teaches us not to despise Old Testament saints. Why? Because they share in Christ's death and resurrection every bit as much as we do. And God honored them by raising them before he will even raise us up. All God's people share in his death and resurrection. And so it reminds us we're saved the same way they are. Uh, Furthermore, this enabled Old Testament saints to share in the kingdom, uh, even though they had been born prior to the time of the kingdom. Uh, They're in heaven. According to the book of Revelation, they're praying. Sometimes they even weep over the things that are happening. How long, O Lord, until you avenge your saints? They're a part of this process of seeing the kingdom being advanced. Uh, Furthermore, it affirms for all time that God does not have two peoples and two purposes in history. Uh, I think that Schofield Bible has done irreparable damage in America, and this is one of the reasons why people have bailed out, the churches failed to be salt and light, and as a result, what does Matthew say? We are good for nothing but to be cast out and trampled underfoot of men. That's what happens to saltless salt, cast out, trampled underfoot of men. That means the foot is the symbol of dominion. That means humanists, Men are going to take dominion of the church rather than the church taking dominion of culture. You cannot believe what you don't understand from the Scripture. Faith is only based upon the Word. Unless you understand what the promises of Scripture are, you're not going to be able to have faith to attempt great things for God or uh, to expect great things uh, from Him. And so I I think it's really important to, to realize that their dispensational idea that God has two purposes and two peoples This is the heart of dispensationalism, that he has an earthly purpose for an earthly people, that's Judaism, that relates to the kingdom, and he has a heavenly purpose for a heavenly people, and that's the church. And they say, never the two shall meet. You can't take promises that were given to Israel and apply them to the church. And so it's caused them to have an escapist, a heavenly uh, perspective, rather than the true perspective. We seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, so that we can live it here on earth, right? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why do we go to heaven? Not to escape earth, but to have his will done on earth as it is done in heaven. And so that concept that God has two purposes, two separate peoples, absolutely wrong, and it's such a destructive, uh, such a destructive doctrine. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 23 says, We've come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. They're the firstborn. Their God only has one bride, one people, and uh, uh, one temple, uh, one plan of salvation, and one scripture. It's also a pledge that if their bodies could be raised, hey, it's no problem for God to raise our bodies in the future either. And so it's kind of a pledge or a token. Uh, And by the way, there is a, a heresy going around by the name of full preterism that says, that every single prophecy in the whole of Scripture has been fulfilled. There's nothing yet to be fulfilled. There is no second coming in the future. There is no future resurrection. And you begin to look at the ramifications of that. That means sin continues to go on forever and ever. It means that, uh, uh, that uh, we don't care about these bodies. They're just going to be discarded like your clipped fingernails are discarded. And they say when we die, we get a spiritual body. And by spiritual body, they don't mean the biblical concept that it's a, a body controlled by the Spirit of God. They mean it's a non-body body. <laughs> it's, a, it's a spirit. And uh, the Scripture says, no, 
we are going to be raised from the graves at the end of history just as surely as those people were raised from the graves. There's some connection uh, between the new bodies and the, the old bodies. Certainly they're transformed. Certainly they're far more glorious. But there is a connection. Now, but why did God open the graves before he had those saints raised up? That seems kind of strange to have them exposed for three days. Well, in part, it may be to fulfill the prophecy in Ezekiel 37, which speaks of the exposed bones. In part, it may have been to be a witness to anybody who wanted to look, hey, there's bodies in these, in these, uh, these tombs. We've, we've seen them for two, three days. And on the fourth day, all of a sudden, these bodies are missing. Uh, it could be a testimony to anybody who had eyes to see. But in your outlines, I suggest three more uh, reasons. First, the tombs were opened at the moment Christ's death to show the power of Christ's death and the power of his blood. We do not have to wait for something more to be accomplished. His death destroyed death. As John Owen titled one book, there was a death of death in the death of Christ. And the, that testimony to God's people, I think, can be a real encouragement. We don't have to wait till our resurrection uh, to lose our fear of death. We can go into our dying moments, uh, the end of our life, with a total confidence. Why? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. It has a power. It had a power to destroy death. Secondly, I think this was saying something to Satan. Satan had been doing his utmost to try to divert Christ from the cross, or if he couldn't do that while he was on the cross, to destroy Christ. And uh, he was not being successful. And so when he heard Christ's cry of triumph and all of a sudden saw these graves busting open left and right, he knew it was all over. He was finished. It, uh, he, he was done. Hebrews 2.14 says that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. According to that verse, Satan did indeed have power. He had power of death over people, but the death of Christ absolutely destroyed uh, Satan. And I can just imagine Satan's shriek of rage as he saw Christ slipping through his fingers and saw those graves busting open. And I can just see the angels of God, who may have been puzzled, what exactly is God going to bring out of this, rejoicing with extreme joy, as they begin to see God's plan unfolding. And so the power of death is destroyed, the power of Satan is destroyed. Thirdly, lastly, it shows the value of the material world, the value of our bodies. We should not fall, fall into the Greek notion that the, the, the non-material is spiritual, that's great, but the body, eh, we try to escape from the body. No, God says He's not only going to redeem our bodies, Romans chapter 8, he's going to redeem the entire creation, right? And so this is a tiny foreshadowing, a tiny foretaste of the fact God is interested in the very physical creation. And so if you have been talking to some people, uh, uh, heretics who deny that we're going to actually get resurrection bodies in the future or that there will be a future second coming, uh, talk to me about that. Uh, that really is a serious problem, and you may not realize all of the ramifications of doctrines that lead out of that, but it is serious. Every historical creed of the Orthodox Church from the beginning uh, to the present has included this concept of a future uh, resurrection of bodies. So all of the miracles that we've been looking at over the past few weeks, what do they do? They point to the deity of Christ, to the kingship of Christ, and to the victory of Christ. 
and we can rejoice in him. He was not a victor. He was a conqueror. Amen? Let's go to him and praise him. Father, we do praise you for the incredible salvation that you have wrought. What an awesome thing it is as we study the details of the Passion Week and uh, we realize that Christ climbed that cross deliberately and as a conquering king and that we do not need to wait for the second coming for the reversal of history that the cross of Jesus Christ has begun that reversal of history. And Father, we long for the time when uh, the nations of this world will be completely Christianized and will be a part of the kingdom of Christ. You have given him the kingdom and you have commanded us to possess that kingdom, to go in uh, following Christ, the, the greater Joshua, as we take the conquest of Canaan. And I pray that you would give to us a, a great faith, uh, a faith to expect great things from you and to attempt great things for you. Give this your people, Father, a, a, a joy and a perseverance as we advance the cause of Christ, knowing that the victory has already been won. And all we are doing is advancing and stepping into that victory. Bless this, your people, with a profound faith, a profound joy, and a profound encouragement in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.